Hello, and welcome to the Newism podcast, where we talk to social entrepreneurs and big thinkers to discover how they would shape a new, more sustainable and inclusive global system where humans live within the means of the planet and all forms of life can thrive. Our guest this week is Sharath Jeevan, the founder of Stir Education and of Intrinsic Labs and a leading expert on how to reignite intrinsic motivation in our lives. STIR supports education systems to rekindle the inner drive of teachers and officials so that they can role model the foundations of lifelong learning in children, the fertile soil of motivation, as Sharat himself refers to it. They currently work with 6 million children and 200,000 teachers across India and Uganda. Sharath has gone on to establish Intrinsic Labs, which helps individuals, organisations and societies to solve their deepest motivation challenges. If our motivation is unleashed, we can all lead more meaningful and fulfilled lives. The conversation between Sarah and Mel is focused first and foremost on the fascinating issue of motivation as the core foundation of a happier, healthier society. They start by discussing how and why Sharath established their education and then move on to why igniting motivation can create a happier, more fulfilled and better run society. This is a fascinating angle from which to look at how we can solve society's problems. And our conversation with Sharath has left us convinced that reigniting motivation should play a key role in creating a new ism. The current series of the Newism podcast was recorded during lockdown. So we were at the mercy of technology and Wi-Fi connections. Please bear with us if the sound quality isn't quite up to scratch. We promise the content of the conversations is worth it. Welcome to the uh, Newism uh, podcast. And we're, we're speaking today with Charat uh, Jeevan, um, a social entrepreneur, um, started an amazing organization called STIR, S-T-I-R. Um, so maybe you could tell us a little about that organization and, and what it does. Thanks, Mel. So we've been really focusing on how do we help uh, a new generation become lifelong learners? And one of the things that's really uh, struck us is given the world of unknown unknowns we live in. And of course, this is a, um, a prime example of these past weeks, of course, just the level of uncertainty out there. How do we equip um, our, our generation of children and young people to be able to really not just cope, but also thrive and flourish in that world? And what we've realized is that um, a lot of that actually needs to happen in the school years rather than waiting for that person to go into work. And so skilling him up that way around. And it means, you know, for example, um, being able to feel engaged and safe in, in their time at school, developing the curiosity, critical thinking, and self-esteem that will really help them to become lifelong learners. Um, and what we're realizing as well is that um, we're just not doing a good enough job in, in schools in, in actually inculcating that. And we've tried, I think, or trying now increasingly to, to build in you know, half an hour a week on character education or change the curriculum. But actually, this is a much more fundamental problem. It's really about how, how our teachers behave day in, day out, because they're often the, the really strong role models in a child's life. But it's also about how people in, this, in the school system who support and develop teachers also behave to create the right relationships and role modeling for those positive behaviors to become, become a reality there as well. So it's a system solution we need, but we need to do it much more, much earlier, much more upstream in the, 
uh, in a child's life to really make a dent in this really important problem. And you, you, you've been hugely successful in, in, in starting schools with, with, with this philosophy uh, in, in India. What, 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 how, many, how many schools are, are you involved in or, or, or started in this way? Yes, I'm really proud, Mel, that we started off with about 12 schools in 2012, and this is our eighth year in operation now. We're now in 35,000 schools, um, reaching about 200,000 teachers and about 6 million uh, children. And we, we don't build schools, but really try to work with existing government systems. The schools are already paid for by governments. The, the hardware, if you like, has already been financed, the hard bit. But the software, the sort of the mindsets, the attitudes, the behaviors, the motivation, that's the bit we really work on across a system uh, to change that. And so the approach we run, which is really all about building peer networks at the teacher level and at different levels of officials in government systems, to, to create that role modeling and those relationships, that approach in, in all costs um, less than, in, in India, about 50 US cents per child per year. That's it. Because almost all of this can be can piggyback on what a system already does and uses its, its existing resources and, and repurposes that. I mean, that's a, a, an incredible impact in, in, a, in a relatively short space of time. I mean, that's, that's, that's very big numbers. Um, and, and, and congratulations. But, but what, what, what kind of motivated you in the first place? What, what was it? Did you have some bad experience in, in the education system or, or was it just something you observed? What, what motivated you to get started on this? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, honestly, the way we started was, was, was completely different from how we're, we're sort of um, continuing and finishing, if you like. And when we started STIR, I was definitely trying to address the um, what was really clear was the kids were not learning in school and you know, hundreds of millions of kids around the world. And we tried to uh, address that problem. And initially, Stir was, was really set up to try to find innovations from teachers, small-scale ideas we could spread, replicate, and test from teachers themselves. And I remember the first summer in 2012, spending you know, a long summer in, uh, in Delhi, actually in 40-degree heat, and meeting hundreds of teachers in, in slums across the, across the capital. And what, did, what sort of we found by actually searching for ideas, we found by accident we were almost rekindling uh, teachers' passion and their love of teaching. And that wasn't what we were trying to do at all, but uh, we'd sort of stumbled across this. And it got to a point where we'd selected the ideas and um, thought we'd done a very good job and felt very pleased with ourselves. And uh, the phone in our office in Delhi just didn't stop ringing for, uh, for days, literally. And it was for teachers saying, look, I know my idea wasn't selected. I'm not quibbling with the, the process, but you've awoken something. You've ignited something in me that I've not felt for a long time. And, you know, it, it got to it so many calls. We thought this is going to be something. So we tried a little experiment. We're quite uh, playful in how we work. And we hired a, the biggest place we could find, which is a very rickety old wedding hall on the outskirts of, of Delhi. I'm sure it's now a shopping mall, but at the time it was a, a wedding hall. <laughs> And we, we called up all the 400 teachers we'd, we'd talked to at random to ask them to attend what we called a, a first network meeting. And um, we remember taking bets among the team of how many would show up. And I remember, I think, betting uh, there would be 80 that showed up that day. And actually, uh, 340 almost showed up um, on, that, uh, on that day. It was a Sunday. It was like 45 degrees that morning. It was the final day of a, a test match between India and England, for example. So it was pretty high. We were not expecting very much. And many of the teachers brought, brought kids with them and we had to make, set up a, a makeshift crash on the side. 
but it gave us that validation that we'd been almost following the wrong path. Really what we should be thinking about is, is almost the soil. How do we create that fertile soil of motivation? And then once you have that soil, then other kinds of seeds we plant you know, in education, whether it's better reading materials or curriculum or assessment techniques, those can kind of sprout into much bigger and taller trees and plants as well. So that's really, uh, that's really been the fundamental learning we've been picking up there as well. So that's really, really interesting in the way you describe it. Um, so what, what's gone wrong then? With, I mean, I'm sure governments, the Indian government, for example, would want the best education for all of its, its, its citizens. Um, well, what's gone wrong? I mean, because it seems to be a global problem whereby teachers who have a vocation to teach and are maybe a, 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 a really talent to teach but end up not teaching, you've awoken in it. What, what's, what's gone wrong, you think, in the system that means that, that, that education's got itself into this place? Yeah, I think it just reminds me of actually, I'm looking out to my garden here in lockdown now, but uh, um, I remember like uh, when, when I first moved in, we, we were lucky to have a garden a few years ago in our first sort of house. We'd always lived in flats most of our, our life. And um, I knew nothing about gardening. And so uh, uh, the garden at that point was, was really stretching reality. It was like a, this kind of expanse of barren, unloved, uh, unloved earth. And I brought in a, a sort of gardening, a gardener to come and just give me some advice. And he said, uh, you know, he gave me all these seeds to plant. And, um, you know, I went du- you know, dutifully to, to, to the garden shops and bought them and planted them. And, you know, a few months later, nothing much had happened. A few months later after that, nothing still was happening. And he finally told me, look, you, the soil isn't, isn't fertile enough. And I think that's a good metaphor for education. We've been trying to find these technical solutions, these, these seeds, whether it's online learning, uh, you know, curriculum assessment, uh, phonics techniques, they're all critically important. But if teachers, officials, and kids don't want to lead, teach, or learn, all of this stuff is really falling on, on literally barren soil. And so we felt, you know, being a small organization, we can only do so much. Um, we, you know, we're, we're, our budget's in the, it's in the millions of dollars, not, uh, you know, we're not a UNICEF or Save the Children or anything like that. Um, so if, what could we do that could really be distinctive we could try and create that motivational soil or with a view that can create the foundations of lifelong learning uh, for children, but also for teachers and for officials as well. And whole systems can improve the learn at the same time. Is, is, is it because do you think that the system or, or, the, or the soil, well, is, it, is it based on and as with um, governments have with, with exams, exam results, league tables and so on are, are the be-all and end-all rather than uh, getting children just to be open up to, to, to learning all the time. Is that the problem? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's absolutely, obviously we also want academic achievement and, and sort of academic subjects to, to improve, of course, and obviously things like uh, reading and you know, are critical to lifelong learning as well. But the way that many government systems are, are set up, especially in emerging countries, is around rote learning. You can pass exams, you know, just by, by sort of mugging up, as, as anyone would say, to pass an exam. And there's no, none of the things we talked about are an engagement, curiosity, critical thinking. Those are not engaged in that activity at all. So I don't think it's a divide where you can do, you have to do one or the other. I think you can teach with rigor, academic content, but change how you teach. And we don't play with curriculums at all now. We feel that's a government priority. That's up to a government to decide what it should be, what it should be teaching, but how teaching is delivered, the relationship between 
a teacher and child, the way the teacher role models to both boys and girls in classes, that can be changed. And that can set up a child to really be that lifelong learner. And, and obviously a lifelong learner in, in any country or as a global citizen, um, you know, I'm, I kind of have this belief you can learn anywhere. You can learn by overhearing a conversation on the bus um, at the same time as you can learn from a, 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 a very a clever professor. Um, but it's a question of getting people to understand that that, that um, to be open like that, to, to, to question and, and, and to, to garner bits of information which are important to you. Definitely. And I think it links to um, a new venture. I'm actually um, um, moving on from start at the end of this year to an advisory role and as we look for a new, a new CEO. And I think one of the things I've really realized that's come up a lot in this whole discussion around the world on motivation is, is around the role of parents. And um, often parents can be significant barriers to, to progress in education. Look even in countries like Singapore where, you know, they have the some of the most um, you know, functional, effective governments in the world. I mean, look at how they've, they've uh, handled the COVID crisis. It's been you know, remarkable in many regards. But um, they also have struggled with this because they've been wanting to make their system more progressive, less road learning, less pressure. But parents have been the blocker there. And I'm setting up actually a new lab around global motivation called Intrinsic Labs, really because I realize that actually if we don't tackle the other wider societal issues, Education on its own can't solve these problems because it's always operating in a under societal constraints, if you like. And so how do we shift parents from, you know, what, what many of us call helicopter parenting, where a parent will hover in and hover out uh, at any sign of danger and actually encourage parents to let their child really uh, find themselves, to nurture themselves, to uh, discover what their unique talents are and also to fail because failure we know is a critical part of lifelong learning as well there. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's so interesting because what you're describing really is between the government in terms of their instruction to schools, even on to, to colleges and universities, I guess, um, but also just a general attitude in society. Parents, because, because they want their children to do well, um, obviously all parents do, um, it's about concentrating on, on getting the exam results then because that's how you get on. So therefore, it, it, the system feeds off itself um, and big, big challenging then to get a whole culture to change. It's not just a question of getting some rules and regulations to change. It's, it's a, a, a culture we need to change, which you've done with some success um, in, 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 in India. Um, and, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll, you'll, you'll see the, the fruits of that later on. No, um, I hope so, Mel. I think one of the things that um, comes with that is the whole, um, I think what, what parents are sort of confusing, and I, I, don't, I feel this very much as a parent myself, I'm under huge pressure from, from peers, and you know, I live in a, in a bubble in, in, in London where there's huge parental pressure. And um, what has happened, I think, is we've confused as parents what motivation theory would call hygiene factors. So getting decent grades is what we would call how you need to do it to, to get the next level, to get to university potentially, whatever next step in life you want to do. But that has become the be, on, be all and end all rather than just uh, something you've got to do. But really the bigger point is helping nurture a child and a young person to be a good, uh, effective human being and a lifelong learner. And so I think it's very easy, I think, in this to sort of make it very instrumental and, and just go and try to achieve that one goal. And everything is, is based around that. And that's where we get into the problems we see. And I, you know, for the book, I'm writing a 
a book on motivation, which has been published next year. And one of the things I talk to parents, for example, all over the world, and if you look at, say, California, where they've had so many suicides recently in, in very well-heeled places like Palo Alto, the, the heart of Silicon Valley, and some of the richest, you know, kids of some of the richest people in the country, the top 1%, uh, perhaps even top 5%, uh, 0.5%, are, are committing suicide in droves uh, because of that pressure. And so it's, it's, not, it's really serving no one particularly well, but it seems to be a sort of rabbit hole we've got into and or a treadmill we've got into, and we can't find a, a way. And my, my strong belief, if we can look at real deep motivation, what will really motivate a child or a young person to want to learn uh, and, and really to thrive in life, that can be a different direction of thinking here. Yeah, I, I mean, it's so interesting because other, other people we've spoken to on, on the podcast will talk about the values we have in society coming at this from a different angle, not from one around education, and talk about actually how people are unhappy. Um, um, you know, the, the GDP may well be going up um, and they may well have material wealth um, at, at different levels, but actually they're not, they're not happy. Um, and it probably all is stemming from the same issue that, that you're, you're describing, that what you're talking about in terms of education. I mean, what, what I, f- I find really interesting is if you have children wh- who are open with this lifelong learning, then I'm presuming we can s- start to tackle intractable, apparently intractable problems like um, extreme poverty in India. So I'm presuming that if you, the, the more children you have educated in that way, the more likely they are to come up and say, hey, this isn't acceptable. Um, and by the way, here's two or three things we might be able to do about this, either, you know, as individuals or groups of individuals. Is that, is, is that, is that right that I'm saying, do you think? No, very much. And I, I think, I mean, just as an example, another Ashoka fellow um, uh, in our network, Camilla, I'm sure you know, is Ed Fido, who's setting up the London Inter- Interdisciplinary School. And his vision is, you know, what he's saying is that actually, you know, so many now graduates go to, you know, Russell Group Universities in the UK or top universities and get a T1 and there's no way to really differentiate them anyway. And there's nothing, they've come up with a pretty academic background. He's setting up um, uh, um, LIS really as, as a different way of thinking, a different way of setting up that experience where they solve real, you know, real world problems across disciplines. And I think we need more of that kind of thinking um, in general. And I think there's all kinds of things we could do with higher education, with technology, all of these things. But I think the reality, though, is we have built school systems to have a classroom, to have a teacher. I do think that's a really critical human experience and, and part of the, um, the experience a child needs to, to, to redevelop. How do we configure that to create the right foundations while in school, as you said, to open up young people for all of these opportunities in the, in the future? We know knowledge is not the challenge now. It's about content is not the challenge. It's really about how do we open up mindsets to be able to absorb that knowledge and use it practically. It's such a fascinating and important area, education. I remember years ago um, talking with some some Russian people about their education system and um, in in the discredited kind of Stalinist uh, communist system one of the things that, that, that they said had actually worked was their education system in that the government um, had put education very, very high up on the agenda and almost as this kind of clear right that everybody had education and that um, rather than a, 
a footballer being a celebrity, um, a, a professor was a, a something to be something to be re revered. Um, but they had quite an interesting system, I, I thought, whereby, you know, up until the age, I don't know, maybe it's 10, 10 11, 12, I can't remember, some, some age like that, everybody kind of got the same education. You, you had nine or 10 subjects that you got. And then you could almost leave at that point, having that base education, leave the system if you wanted. And then they were streaming. So they would, they would identify youngsters who had particular talent or bent towards certain areas and then they would have centers of excellence. Is, is, is that something you think uh, would work in, system, uh, in the system you're describing? Or is that, once again, far too much about kind of picking people up early on and, and, and forcing them into areas they might be good at but not particularly like? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I look at myself and I, this is my fourth career now as I go and set up intrinsic labs now, Mel. And uh, um, yeah. my wife is um, trained in the French system and she's Moroccan. And in France, I think there's much more of a culture of you train to do one thing. She's an accountant. You do that your whole life. And it's, 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 it's much more of that sort of culture. She's actually trained to be a counselor right now. So she's um, breaking that, uh, that, that sort of stereotype. But um, I do think that's, I think it's fine. I think it's really great to find something you love doing and love learning early in life. And if you know that early on, that's fantastic. But I think what's more important is creating these broader foundations of lifelong learning that can help you whatever you study. And those need to be weaved into whatever you, you do in terms of content as well. I think we've obsessed so much by this whole question of content. Should it be vocational, technical, academic, you know, all of that stuff. But the actual, the how and the sort of the, the, the way of learning is actually much more important in our, uh, our, our minds as well. Uh, I, I, I'm interested in changing the subject slightly, just, just about your kind of um, changing career. I mean, mm. a, a lot of um, focus on the moment, particularly with the COVID-19 uh, uh, problem and people looking for solutions coming out and the being focused on social entrepreneurs, actually, as potential leaders. Um, you, 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 you've decided to, to, to move on from a very successful organization and you're starting another one, Intrinsic Labs, yeah? Um, so wh why, why have you decided to do that? People would kind of say to you, hey, why are you leaving something that's, that, 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 that's really effective and, and, and got huge potential? And, and tell us a little bit about the, the new initiative. Yeah, thanks, Mel. And, yeah, so, so I think with any um, organization, as, we, as it gets bigger and it grows, and um, there's always this, this risk, I think, of founder syndrome. I think we've, you know, we see it a lot in the, in the social sector, but we see it also in the tech sector or in any, any Silicon Valley startup as well. And I think for me, I, really at the end of last year, feeling that um, the organization had largely kind of outgrown me. I think I, I'm still very much an entrepreneur at heart. I'm very proud of where we've got to. But I think as we go into our next chapter, we need a more sort of grown up, mature uh, leadership style. And, um, and you know, we, we're, we're thinking about the future of planning, of making decisions and so on as well. And so... Uh, no, it felt right. And I think my, my psychic contract with, with my board and with uh, my, our stakeholders at Stir overall has been that I, I would never get in the way of that. And I think always trying to do what's right for the organization. Um, what happened actually, and this was the sort of funny story of it, is that uh, this came to me at sort of the end of last year, but midway through uh, um, uh, 2019, I, I met a literary agent, Rachel Mills, and we started talking about writing a book more generally about the wider topic of motivation. Uh, it's been published by the Czech Group next year. And that just got me to really apply what I've been learning about STIR, about how do you reignite 
the, the autonomy, the mastery, the purpose, the, what we call the intrinsic motivation of teachers, uh, 200,000 of them this year, how do you apply those insights to other domains of life? You know, what does it mean about how you think about the work environment? You know, why, you know, we had this kind of crazy war for talent, you know, over the last years where companies in, say, uh, you know, uh, a Google or a Microsoft compete over how good is the free coffee you provide your employees or is, is lunch free or not? Or you know, do you get a bus, you know, from uh, San Francisco to Palo Alto? You know, to, so all of these kinds of questions come up. And I think we've been competing largely on hygiene factors, salary perks and so on. Uh, similarly, in, in, in India, you know, the government has increased teacher pay fivefold over the last 20 years. And that's not led to any material in, improvement in motivation. So it, what it started to do is really make me realize what I've been doing in a very specific domain had a much broader applicability in, in, in many others. And it felt, uh, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting role, I think, through the book to try and apply some of these techniques to other, other walks of life. And yeah, the, the sort of image that's really been sort of haunting me over those last few weeks with COVID has been, you know, as, I, as I walk around now in London and, and see people gradually taking off their masks, um, I think we need that same kind of metaphor in life as well. We, we often wear a mask, I think, at work. We wear that, that kind of mask of professionalism. We wear the mask of being the, pe- the perfect parent. We try and be the, uh, uh, the perfect citizen, uh, all of these kinds of things. And actually, how do we try and find a more authentic way of living in each of these domains that really taps into our inner drive, our intrinsic motivation, and allows us to be much more effective and fulfilled in what we do? And that's what the lab is trying to do. It's pretty ambitious, but trying to really work with organizations in these different domains and co-create solutions and share them really widely from there. I mean, that, that, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, having aims like that, that is very ambitious. But I think a, a lot of people now, particularly, let's say, the area of politics and leadership in the world, we, we, we talk about there being, you know, authentic leadership just not really existing, but actually what's being created here is um, puppets, if you like, who, who are uh, just simply speaking to the media, uh, um, to saying words that they, they think people want to hear rather than being very clear about what they, they actually mean or what motivates them. And that is causing a lot of, the, of, of issues around lack of trust um, amongst us and making us, as, as citizens, feel very uncomfortable. Um, so maybe what you're describing is that what we need is a type of new leader that emerges that, that we feel comfortable with that is authentic and, and, and genuine in what they're in what they what they're doing in life. So I, I interviewed dozens of politicians for the book actually, and there's a whole um, um, a chapter on, on on politics and citizenship actually, Mel. And I what was really interesting from that is I don't I do think it's obviously great to grate fresh blood into politics and. I know we often, you know, sort of bemoan this career politician, you know, the, the person of, you go as a special advisor, for, you know, into a think tank, then you go into, um, from a think tank and then into politics. But actually, you know, what I learned was that it's a really tough business politics in terms of how do you both, how do you command the political apparatus and lead a party? And that's very tough and prior leadership there. But then how do you then go on onto uh, the civil service and actually work with administrators and actually make all these policies actually workable? And it's a very, very complex and, uh, um, difficult role and there are not many good roots of what, what I would call mastery you know, the ability to get better as a professional in politics compared to any other profession 
Um, but what I did find is I, I would talk to him, for example, in the UK, to many people in the House of Lords, and there, there are a lot of good people already out there and who are genuinely motivated. And there are many studies that have been done around the world on the motivation of politicians. And actually, the, the overall conclusion is they are far more motivated by intrinsic or you know, um, uh, drivers, by, by actually citizens and what they're doing than we would expect them to be. And certainly what the rhetoric would say, they're in fairly toxic environments where they feel forced to play, to act, I think, and play the game you described now. And I think one of the problems, I think, talking about some of the bigger picture issues are the way that inequality has gone in many of our, our countries is it's divided our, our electorates into, for want of a better word, haves and have-nots. And I think politicians have felt real pressure to play that divide in different ways. And that ability to really um, no longer be a one-nation politician is really cancerous in many of our systems right now. Um, you know, one of the things I'm really excited with the lab is trying to work with some parliaments or, uh, and some, some uh, administrative leaders to look at how we can change some of these, these pieces. I don't think it's just about getting new people. I think there are many great people there. I think we need to think, rethink how we can genuinely drive their intrinsic motivation. That's so, so interesting because I, I think I would, I would agree with that. I actually know a lot of, of, of uh, politicians from di different uh, political persuasions they're actually very genuine people and um, have gone into politics because they, they want to create change and they want to do things for the better, however they believe. But in, in, in somehow, I think all of them are, are somehow dissatisfied. And I kind of would say it's, um, uh, it's about the system. The, the system that's been created around politics globally almost is, is out of date for a modern world, a modern fast world. And actually it's, it's not about the slowness of uh, scrutiny, which, which, which uh, parliamentarians have to do through uh, passing laws or whatever. Um, but it's actually just, just the, the whole system, the whole way politicians now are even elected or, or, uh, and, and then the pressures on them, as you say, around the media, in, in, in particular, so maybe, maybe it's it's what we need is a is a is a new system that actually uh, reflects the genuine motivation that they already have. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Mel. I think this kind of a la carte politics, as I call it, where you know we want as an electorate to sort of choose policy by policy, uh, it's just not realistic in the world we, we're in. I think what's happened is we. As citizens, we have these really high expectations of our leaders, which is absolutely right. But I think we've forgotten that if you want to have real leaders, you've also got to follow to some extent. And I think if you look at um, say some of the, things, the ways we've tried to increase scrutiny on politicians, um, there's a famous study in the U.S. of C-SPAN, you know, the, um, uh, uh, the, the political network that uh, televises the, both houses. After C-SPAN came in, the level of compromise among politicians should, uh, uh, between the different parties um, actually reduced sharply because basically there was grandstanding, right? Politicians felt that desire to, to appeal to their core base and that idea of compromise um, got lost alongside it. So I think as, as citizens, as electorates, we've got to be, I think, be clear with politicians what we want as the ends, but I think allow a lot more discretion over the means and allow politicians to, to find those compromises and answers for us rather than try and... Uh, they take every every part of that, and I think that applies from everything from, you know, independence movements in some countries to Brexit to how we think about climate change as well. Do, do you think? I, I, I mean, a lot of when I, I'll talk about the media, 
and the influence the media has, um, and I, my own views is it's it's it's, it's become too too powerful, um, and that what happens is use the word kind of grandstanding is that um, politicians now it's almost like they're in kind of some kind of television celebrity game all the time, and 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 they play to that. Um, whereas in point of fact, um, being a politician and being a lawmaker actually a lot of it's pretty mundane and boring. That isn't to say it's, it's not important what they're doing. It's very important, but it's not necessarily like colorful and showy and so on and so forth. It's just they have to get on and do stuff and, 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 and write laws and pass laws, which, which will affect the, the citizens. But it seems like it's, it's now we've become this kind of um, celebrity show. And so the media is actually driving the behavior of, of politicians and making them unauthentic. Um, do you think media has got a kind of a, a, a menacing role to play in the way we are these days? Yeah, I think it's a role that can be reset. And I think one of the really interesting questions is what is the new deal we need between politicians and our politicians and our electorates, between our politicians and the media, Mel? And I think, um, yeah, as, as you know, one of, the, one of the most respected books I read during uh, when I was researching my own was by Isabel Hartman who looked at British politicians. And you know, what she was saying, for example, was that actually, the, as you said, for, for being a modern politician nowadays, you need to have a really, really strong idea of the law and a strong you know, legal background often to create the right policies and legal frameworks. You need to have time. And it's, it's remarkable, but she said that there's not, she couldn't find many examples where there's even a review of a policy four or five years later in any systematic way. So you can imagine if you're a surgeon, you're doing heart transplants, you you get data back pretty regularly, but are you being affected? What's happened to the mortality rates of your uh, uh, survival rates of your, your patients and so on? As politicians, once, a politi- you know, once the, the headline is, is gone, as you said, there's almost never a review back of how effective has it been. So how do you develop mastery? How do you develop the right purpose as a politician? As you said, your purpose has now become inextricably linked to your media image and your profile in that way, Mal, rather than genuinely, are you developing the right laws and serving your citizens in the right way? So I think, yeah, a lot of polls has become dysfunctional, but I don't think we, we tend to blame politicians, and I'm not saying that's completely unfair, but I think we have to look at some of these wider forces and try and create new deals uh, to make our politics relevant again and less polarised. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's so interesting. We could, we could have a long discussion about the politics, I think, but it's, it's important when we're trying to create this newism, how representation and, and how we, 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 we all fit together, I think, and where the leadership is. Um, but it's so interesting because the same people I suspect will be very critical of politicians uh, will be the 70% of people who don't vote at local elections. Um, and it's always seemed to me incredible that um, when you speak to people and they're, they're angry for uh, the leadership or whatever, but actually, certainly locally, they then, they then don't vote. And it's almost like, well, if you don't vote, you know, you end up with what you end up with. Um, but it's a, it's a strange, um, I, I don't know, atmosphere around towards politicians, which is very negative. I, I agree, Mel, but I think there's also a wider sort of, I think, cancer in, in our world today where we're becoming increasingly instrumental over how we think about how we want to achieve what we want to achieve, right? So you're a foundation who wants to fund, uh, fund a, uh, a nonprofit organization, for example, Increasingly, you want, you want the outcome. I want to know whether kids are learning or children are healthy or whatever. 
But increasingly, we've, we've adopted this whole, whole sort of philosophy. I don't care how you do it, just do it. And there's nothing more uh, destructive for motivation. And we've been lucky so, to have you know, foundations who haven't had that approach and have been the opposite, but that's become rarer and rarer. And I think you see that if you're you know, an investor into a company, if you're you know, a citizen electing your politician. And I think the point is what, what should be motivating a, a politician, for example, is is your citizen, is a citizen you're actually accountable to and, and representing, uh, are, they, are their lives improving? We've kind of severed that link, right? And it's the same link that severs the link between a teacher. What should motivate a teacher is seeing their children thrive and progress. Instead, they feel accountable to this very different bureaucratic system. And the child, who is the sort of cold reason you got into teaching, has been taken out of that motivation equation. And there's the same way, I think, in politics. We've taken out the, uh, the, um, that, that feedback loop between the politician and the citizen, the way you described and so a lot of, I think, what we need to do thinking about motivation theory is how do you bring those feedback loops back and realize that your motivation is only as good as the, uh, as the electorate you serve or the child you teach. That, that's got to be the way we rethink how we nurture talent, nurture our work in general. I think that's gone astray as well in, in this whole rush to get outcomes and value for money and all these you know, nice sounding things. Okay, I mean, it's been fantastic talking to you. And uh, unfortunately, we have to kind of finish now. Um, I, I, I think some of the, the issues that you've touched on are absolutely key to anything as we're moving forward and creating this newism. Um, education, proper effective education is obviously a, a, a key uh, part of it, but also really examining what genuinely motivates us and how that can put back, as you described, into a loop uh, where we're all kind of supporting one another and benefiting from benefiting uh, each other through genuine motivation is, is very important. So uh, I'd like to really thank you for your time. Now, um, before we go, though, you mentioned a couple of times you've got this book coming out. So, so tell us what's the title of the book and when's it coming out? And then we'll, I'll be going out to buy it and I'll be urging everyone else to come buy it. Because it's thanks. <laughs> Well, thanks. Well, that's what, 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 what's it called? When's it coming out? So Intrinsic is a, is a working title. It's meant to be out in, in February. Let's see how COVID does to that as well, but uh, out in the early part of next year. And no, it's been, thanks, Mel. It's such a pleasure to chat. And I think what's, um, what I'm really excited by that's come from the book is this real, as you said, this clear direction on motivation, how we can use some of the principles of motivation to, to resolve our most pressing problems. And that's what I'm most excited about from that. Well, I mean, it, as I've said earlier, it's been fa fabulous talking with you. Um, I think this whole issue about um, authentic motivation, what drives us, and, and, and stopping to think about that um, uh, will potentially affect all walks of life, why you invest, why you work there, how you, how you educate your children, etc. everything. Um, and um, so it's a really important bit of work. And obviously... The work you've done so far with the education is uh, has been great, but obviously, if anything like the success you've had with that and motivation, um, then we really look forward to the, the impacts it's going to make. And um, we're, we're certainly through the newism, keep people informed um, as soon as the, as soon as you have details about when the book's coming out. Um, we we'll look look forward to that. And um, in the meantime, in these in these strange um, COVID nineteen times. Stay well, stay well, stay well, and stay safe. And um, we'll talk soon. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Mel. That was great. I was gripped all the way through. Thank you very, very much. And we really look forward to, to releasing it and sharing it. 
Yeah, thanks, I, 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 for me, it's, it was great as well. And, I, I, you know, we, we kind of have a lim- an upper limit of kind of about 40 minutes, which we mm. were hitting. But I, 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 I'm not joking you. I, I could have gone and talked for another hour. Uh, I, I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's this sort of stuff that you're doing is really, really interesting and, and, and really important, fundamental. No, thank, thanks so much, guys, and thanks for being so generous. I, I know I, it's the first time I'm talking about the, the lab, the, the book properly as well in any public forum. So it's really uh, interesting where the, you know, the stir side of it, um, obviously I, I've done more of, but it's just, it was actually the first time I've done that publicly. So actually it was quite an interesting experience to hear my own thoughts and figure out, could I actually articulate this in a semi-clear way? So uh, well, I think it's really interesting. Very clear. Yeah, no, it came across um, really well. It came across okay. really no. well. Yeah. No, thanks, guys. Well, such a, no, so, so exciting. Such a, such, so much fun to chat. I love the... I've had so many uh, episodes now as well, so I love the, uh, love the podcast as well. So I'm no, a huge fan. Oh, thank you. We're, we're really happy to, to have you as one of our guests. We're really excited. Yeah. I know we talked about it, those drinks last year, so it's great that you're yeah. our first guest of the new season. Yeah, it's amazing, amazing, actually. So when, 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 when is the next, uh, when is the new season coming out? Guys, in terms of, uh, I think, I think um, Mel and I agreed that we'll start releasing, what we try and do is kind of have a few in hand before we start releasing mm-hmm. them. So I think this one will probably go out in early June. Oh, very cool. Please let me know. I'm really excited. I'll let you know when yeah. it goes yeah, out. Of course, of course. No, 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 I'll blast that heavily. No, 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 no. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. And, um, you know, we said we'd get, get back to you and help you with your own podcast. So let, let us know about that. And any help we can yeah. give you there, technically. Or, Amazing. Uh, yeah, I'm going to you know. send you, I, I know I sent you the basics last week, but I'll send you um, a few more recommendations, you know, about the, the platform we use and the software we use to edit and stuff. Oh, so, uh, I will. I'll send you a list of things. I mean, obviously, we don't. We're not the most professional editors and what what's what not. But um, what we do is no, no. good for now. <laughs> no, no, no. It's very strong. I mean, when I when I hear it, it look, it sounds super pressurized as well. So actually, I bought your um, your microphone like as well. I, I tried it on. It didn't seem to work. So I'll try and uh, fix it and see what happened there as well. But no, no. But it's perfect. I got it on uh, the phone as well. So I uh, I'll try it out just see if I can guinea pig and see for why it wasn't uh, yeah, um, working fully. But, but working. Yeah, no, no, but, but no, it must be something I've done. Sometimes, a bit of a, sometimes. Did, you, did you try it in your computer? No, I tried it for my iPhone actually. So I bought the jack as you suggested. So yeah. I tried it out, but uh, yeah, but it must be something on my end. I'm sure I'm sometimes okay. a bit of a luddite. So I'll, I'll do that and uh, check out. Uh, check out what it is. And I can have a look into it as well. Okay. I don't know. Amazing, actually, as well. And no, I think, but also I think the idea of just what's great is also being on other people's uh, cast and talking to different audiences is so nice as well, actually. So I'm also just thinking, you know, what's the most effective way of doing it is better to try and just have different perspectives on other people's content or try and create some for the lab and all this stuff is just things uh, to think through as well, actually. Oh, well, it's so, exciting. And we look forward yeah. to, uh, to hearing your podcast as well when it comes. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Thank you guys. Okay. We'll, we'll keep in touch. And, uh, well, sounds good. Speak to you again. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Mel. Thanks, Alex. Have Cheers, a guys. weekend. Thank you. You too. Have a good yeah. Thanks again. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye. 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 We hope you learned as much from our conversation with Sharath as we did. We'll be back next week with another fascinating conversation with a well-known social entrepreneur. If you enjoy this series, we'd be really grateful if you could rate and review us on iTunes so that our conversations reach as many people as possible. Thank you.